0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Steph. Steph.
2: Steph. Merde! Somebody gave me this, Cousin. Gave me this. That's all he it did. do.
1: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Carol Borden. Hey, Mike. Also along with us this week is Ms. Haley McCormick.
2: Hey.
1: On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at Samira Elagoza's 2016 documentary, Craigslist All-Stars. Rather than trying to sum up the film here, I want to just read you the note that started the work. So this is from Craigslist itself under Personals, under the title Read Me, Looking for Strangers. I'm a 24-year-old girl making a short documentary film, and I'm looking for strangers. The concept is, I meet you in your home and film how we get to know each other. There are no specific directions for you. We shake hands, the camera's on the table for you to use, or me. It's quite open and will be a different experience with each of you, I hope, for many contacts. Message, and I will give you more details, XO. I'm not sure if I can necessarily give spoilers on this film, but nothing is going to be off the table, out of bounds, any of that. So proceed with caution if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie yet. So, Carol, I'm curious, what did you think of Craigslist All-Stars?
3: I think it's an interesting movie. It's not one I would have watched on my own uh, if you hadn't invited me to watch it and discuss it with you guys. It's certainly brave. And I think it's interesting how... It exposes the men who choose to participate in it. How about you, Haley? I thought it was
4: a very intimate film, like going in just for her to go in and meet all of these strange mm. men and see how their interactions. I think it played really well, just like the different like psyches of men. Just they were all so different. They had such she had such different relations with all of them. And I thought that was really beautiful and a way to watch. Like like a cringy kind of beautiful.
1: Yeah, cringy is definitely there. There were a lot of times where I was just like, oh, no. And I felt embarrassed for some of the guys, though I don't know if I should have. But I definitely did. There were a few of them that I just was... Just kind of grinning and hoping that this segment would not be as long as some of the other ones.
4: Well, that's what I think is like so interesting about it. Like it played so well, on just like the psyche of men, and just like the different, like she chose, or I guess they chose her. I don't really know how her, like how if she used all of the men she got messages from, or anything like that. But the men that she used in the film, they were all so different. And it was so interesting to watch them interact with her and for also her to to interact with them. Because you could tell the ones that she was a little bit more comfortable with, I think. Like, I think that there was a lot of emotion was definitely something that you could read throughout it. You were very, like, emotionally
1: involved. Well, yeah, there was a lot of of connection with a couple of them, at least uh, for sure. The magician and i I, what was it uh was it steph or the, the ukrainian some uh emotional connection there but then some of them you could tell that or it seemed to me that she was as creeped out by some of these guys as we were as the audience the first guy right out of the gate the the one that she calls the sadist is just like yeah no not really interested thank you very much but you know, she spent a lot of time with him and I thought it was interesting the way that she intercut him talking about stuff with him playing the piano. and I that was a nice way of, of introducing the piece even though we had that little bit of the magician to open it up. And I like that intro of him doing his trick. I guess that was almost a metaphor for the film as far as the cards being infected and the way that the one thing will touch another, will touch another. And just the way that she's kind of touching all of these people's lives.
4: That one guy that I noticed who was on the, he's on his computer. I don't know if he was watching like pornography or if he was working and he was masturbating, and she was just in the other room. That, to me, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so
2: uncomfortable
3: to watch. I don't think a lot of men were aware of it. Like, the most blatant about it was the director who wanted to actually set up a scene with her. But so many of the men were both lonely and seeing her as an opportunity to do something they wanted to do. Like, they they weren't necessarily seeing her very well because they were so excited by this chance And the exhibitionist guy, that guy, had this whole thing of how he wanted to see if he could be an exhibitionist with her in the room, if he could be naked and masturbate with her in the room. And how she starts off participating because it fits with her category of this is a real thing that's happening between us. And then she just gets bored and goes off and drinks tea. (laughs) I liked her presence in that, not in terms of necessarily that she was showing him her disinterest or showing us her disinterest and his total obliviousness to it. But that that's where she really starts to be present in the film for me in a way she wasn't necessarily present with the sadist pianist because he's just telling her his theories about sadism and she's doing a fairly straight interview with him.
1: So for people that haven't seen this film, it is broken up into three parts and then each one of the parts has three and up uh, of these interviews kind of these segments let's call them and I think the first and the second one there's one set in Amsterdam another set in Berlin and those have I think six each and then there's one in Tokyo that wraps it up that has three and Each one of those segments has a title to it, whether it's right at the beginning or somewhere within it. And she calls these guys by something to set them apart. So there's, you know, the expert, the director, the Turkish dancer, the guy who lives above his bar, these kind of things. So it's when we're referring to people by these names, we're not just kind of arbitrarily calling them that so there are there's a reason why we are saying these things but it does kind of boil down an entire person into one label and i really enjoy that samira is in charge of this even though like there are times where she appears on camera where it is the other person uh shooting her but for the most part she's the one shooting the situation she's the one that feels in control of the situation Which is very interesting because here she is putting these people under the microscope in their own environments. And that was another thing that kept me on the edge of my seat is just guys are unpredictable. People are unpredictable. And here she is going into their worlds and putting them under this microscope. And I just kept being afraid for her that something bad was going to happen.
3: She's really good at navigating those men. I was really impressed at her social skills. And it's interesting how it plays out into uh, making each scene as she figures out how to interact with each man. And I do think that going into their home and
4: environment, we're able to read them a lot better. And it's also probably a safety precaution, seeing as these strange Mm. men going into her home and knowing where she lives, I feel like that could end a lot worse
1: in the long run. So these guys, they definitely have self-selected because they're the ones who answered the ad. I'm curious, and I have yet to interview Samira, but I'm excited to do so because I want to know, were there any people that didn't work out? But, you know, of the, what is it, uh, 15 people that we see, How many more were there that she interviewed? Did she ever go in and it was five minutes of this and she said, yeah, I'm leaving? Or did she ever you know, just get a bad feeling and not do this? So I'm very curious of that. But as far as these 15 people that said, yes, I will do this, that are on camera, it is interesting. They're all looking for a connection. And the one thing that really got me was almost every single one of these guys, it was almost like – a connection or they wanted to teach her something. I don't know what it was, but there were so many instructors, you know, we had, we talked about the director and uh, the exhibitionist, but it seemed like everybody wanted to sit her down and maybe make a connection. But a lot of times it felt like they just wanted to hear the sound of their own voice.
4: Yeah. I think that's like a big thing where mansplaining comes in and especially her being a young, beautiful woman going into their space and trying to like manipulate and kind of control that or also in like a whole nother sense, just like the fact of being in someone's life life for just a very temporary moment and trying to make it impactful. So I think it just kind of plays on like mansplaining
3: and just being human. They do want to make a connection. Like I, I'm a small woman and I'm quiet and I get a lot of that. Like that is really common in my life. And I think they want to make a connection, but they don't want to be vulnerable. So they want to be in charge of the situation because maybe that desire to have some kind of intimacy makes them vulnerable and they're not comfortable being vulnerable. So instead, they're going to teach her how like their theories about how to make cum tasty or they're going to have really bossy um waltzing lessons or... <laughs> they're going to expound on their theories of their own sexuality or teacher card tricks or whatever, because that makes it safe for them. Like that's where they feel unsafe. Like her unsafety is being in that environment with these men and their feelings of vulnerability and their feelings of safety are all around being in control of the social interaction and not. Being vulnerable.
1: I'm very curious how she went from learning how to dance with the uh, the French teacher and there's that great cut where she's going from dancing with him to all of a sudden she's doing the same moves but now she's bound up and half naked and it's like, whoa, what happened there?
3: <laughs> and he suddenly there's sense of how he was dancing with her because he was being very aggressive and teaching her how to dance <laughs> the way he wanted her to dance.
4: And also I thought a lot about if Their masculinity was a little heightened because they were on camera Mm. to kind of like prove like, oh, I'm I'm here.
1: Yeah. The Ukrainian really felt like he was putting on a big show like that.
3: Yeah. Well, and then he he switches to I'm going to kill you. And the same with like with his guitar stuff like he threatens her too when she's not. I don't know what he wanted from her. I think he wanted her to treat him like a rock star, but he goes to the same thing like he, he threatens her.
1: And then he ends up like getting on his computer and just playing on his computer while she's there. He reminds me of like one of my nephews where it's like, oh yeah, come watch me play video games. It's like, I have no pleasure in watching you play video games. And it's interesting how many exhibitionists there are in this. I guess all of them are kind of exhibitionists. But there's the literal, the one that we call the exhibitionist that you talked about before. But then there's the one named Toy where... It's just him dressing up like a woman, kind of on camera. And again, like showing how he does webcam shows and doing all of these elaborate poses and all of this stuff. And it's, it's just another one of those like really sad moments. I mean, granted, if the exhibitionist and toy have a good time doing this, that's great. But just from the outside, looking at them through her lens. It just felt really kind of sad.
4: There was like a lot of isolation in that one. Like it was a very just kind of like cold, like lonely kind of environment. And like with every like crackle and like their voice and stuff, it was very distant, I felt.
3: Toy was was interesting to me too, because Toy's gender presentation is so different from everybody else's. But I think Toy had some of the same conflict about, I'm going to use he because I don't, like it seems like Toy is just cross-dressing and it isn't a gender identity, but it's also hard to tell because he is so matter-of-fact about how he's doing this online for as a webcam show and he strips and he does it slowly, but then there's a point where he says, and everybody's left the, chat, the, the room now because I don't have breasts. And it's hard to say whether it's like this, he enjoys doing that to people, or if he, in, he is sort of given up about what he wants, like he's just accepted the situation that he wants to do this. He wants people to find him sexy, but they're not going to. And it, a lot of the men seem to have that same sort of sadness about what they want, that same kind of loneliness and conflictedness about it.
1: I think the English plumber was the one that seemed the most sad to me. And just, he he seemed to be the one really looking for a connection and just somebody to be a sympathetic ear.
3: Yeah, it actually reminded me a lot of sex worker accounts of like how much of their job is listening to men talk about things like their divorce.
1: And it's interesting that she kind of paired that between the English plumber and then went to the magician because it is shot in such a radically different style and there's a connection that's made there, but it's a much different connection. I was very, frankly, I was very surprised to see that she would let her guard down that much To, I mean, we see her drinking and screwing and changing outfits and it's just shot like this big rave party. And it's just amazing. Those moments where she'll just kind of break that and go into something like that. Cause I believe it happens uh, twice in the film where she'll really like over-stylize something, but in a good way, and it's nice that she'll just be able to do that, and uh, it, it uh, really livens up the proceedings, because if we were to sit through five English plumbers, you could get really depressed really fast, but she manages to change the pace and change the shooting style with each single person, so every single time, it's interesting, and then you have to I guess it's kind of like her. You have to now get introduced to these people and kind of figure out where you stand with them. Well, that's kind of like
4: um what I was saying before. Just in some of um, the relationships that she makes with them are so genuine and intimate, like with the magician. Like, I, I do wonder if they stayed in touch. Like, their relationship, at least on camera, seemed so friendly and like it was coming from... Like, like she knew him, and they were just hanging out. That's what I that's what I felt from it, and it was so nice to see her being able to like interact with people in that way.
3: And it ends with that lovely moment with the sensei where they're just holding each other, and mm-hmm. it also feels so intimate and genuine and vulnerable and nice.
1: It's such a nice way to end the film. Yeah. Then there would be guys like the Turkish dancer where you just don't really know what the story is necessarily but it looks like a fun time
3: that was the first time that i I mean with the magician it's obvious because they play dress up together so much but with it's also quite apparent to me well i guess with the turkish dancer it's not so that it's quite so apparent but she obviously dresses up as okay i'm i'm dressed up as the person who's come to learn turkish dance like she's the dress and i she's did she do her hair in a ponytail but yeah, she's she's dressed in a very different way for that. And initially I was wondering if in Amsterdam she did a number of them on the same day, or if she had decided that she was gonna have the same outfit when she visited these people and then sort of dropped off on that. Um but yeah, I don't I don't know. I think maybe he just was sharing the joy of Turkish
1: dance with the world. Hey, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with The Magician, the thing that I felt is it was kind of like that fleeting romance or that that time that you know isn't going to last. Like it reminded me of something like, I don't know, Before Sunrise or – yeah, Before Sunrise where it's like, okay, we have this little connection here and we're going to make it last as long as we possibly can. Because it feels like – and I don't know if this is true or not, but it feels like days go on when – she and this guy are together as opposed to some of them where I if I were her I would just want to leave as soon as I possibly could. So but it felt like that one, especially with the fast motion I guess, it felt like I was seeing the sun rise and fall while they were doing what they were doing. They got together, they met through the the Craigslist ad and Maybe, because I want to say that one of the rules that I heard, and it wasn't in the ad itself, but I thought that there was a rule that she wouldn't come back and do any more filming. So it almost feels like she and he were trying to make it last as long as possible because they didn't want to say their goodbyes. But, I mean, I don't know how hard and fast that rule was. Like, I would love it if I knew that they were still friends now, whether they're lovers now or not, whatever, but as long as they mean. Teen connection, because that is the thing, is there, that there does seem to be genuine connection that happens between her and a handful of the guys that we see on camera, but not necessarily all of them. I don't think that she's, like, calling up Toy every, you know, Tuesday and like, hey, how you doing?
4: You could see a connection there. And it was very, it was, it was a interesting way to meet somebody and for it to not seem so intense, as intense as the other ones, and
1: just like a good genuine time. Did any of these segments leave you guys wanting? Were there any of the segments that you said, oh, I really wish that had gone on longer?
4: No, the last scene where they're holding each other, I want to know more of their story, but I don't necessarily think that um, it needed to go on longer. I think that it was just perfect the way it was. I think she did a really, really good job at cutting all of the segments and she placed everything together. But more so, I would want to know like the backstories of the men than to watch it on film.
3: I don't really feel like I needed any of them to go on longer. I do think the Tokyo segments um, feel... I liked them all. I feel like they didn't because the other ones were so intense. Um they I maybe they could have used a little more or maybe these men were not as intense an experience cuz like it seems like nothing alarming or threatening happened with those three. And I guess if I wanted one maybe to be a little different, I would be interested in the pink director because what another really genuine not deep, intimate moment, I thought, uh, was when the Pink director tells her, it's my job. And I would be interested more in listening to them talk than I was in her Pink audition. But I also think um, that was for her. She wanted to see what it was like to do that and to be that that woman, you know, or to try to be that woman and see what it was like. So, yeah, I, I think it's all good as it is.
1: And yeah, this film raises so many interesting questions about gender. You know, we talked about the whole idea of who's in charge, you know, and her coming to their places and the, the inherent danger of some of this stuff. So it's, it's really interesting that she's the one who holds the camera through most of it. So that kind of gives her more cachet than the guys that she's shooting. So it's, it would be interesting just to kind of, figure out those moments when maybe she's not holding the camera and then maybe see if she's not necessarily in control during those points. But to your point from earlier, as far as the way that she changes to meet the situation and the clothes she wears, the hairstyle she wears, all of those kind of things, is she trying to meet expectations or is she just doing her own thing? So there are so many interesting questions that this film brings up. I don't know if we'll even be able to answer any of them in this discussion but at least it's there and it's it is to your point a very nicely done pretty tight documentary i mean the whole movie runs 66 minutes and i don't know if i would necessarily want to see too much more like to your point haley i would love to see more information about these guys but i also kind of like that it leaves me wanting
3: Yeah, well, it's kind of rough going. A lot of it is rough going and more of it is not. I don't know that I would process more of it if there were more of it. And I was reading that it's part of a larger project, the stranger project that she started doing after she was sexually assaulted. And so it's also interesting to me that this is part of how she is processing that, that she would put herself in this position after that experience. And that she would present these new experiences to us the way she does.
1: So let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with Samira Elagaz, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. A hunger for horror? A yen for yelp yarns? Then give your blood bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. No, 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 no. Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder.
3: I'm Wendy Hemprock.
1: The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television.
3: Welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus. Hello everyone,
1: show. and welcome to the Faithon, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel.
3: Hi everyone, welcome to the study welcome group. To the
1: Top Genre Characters of All Time Countdown. And
3: tonight we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones
1: Season Three.
5: Find us at sci fi tvcom Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless List Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking, Nick Richards. In 2016, as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, Talking about his friendship with John G. Avildsen, And I personally can't wait for you to hear us And join the fight to keep film culture alive You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course SoundCloud This is Adam Spiegelman
0: from the Cult Movie Podcast Proudly Resents And you listen to my favorite movie podcast The Projection Booth I know, it's messed up, right?
6: My name is Samira Elagos. I'm an artist and I work mainly with performance, uh, theater and film, and uh, sometimes with installation art. But my background is more actually in dance, but uh, a couple of years ago I started working with film and after that I didn't return to to, uh, movement at all. So now I'm basically just creating work with film, uh, with the camera.
1: How did you go from the dance world into the film world?
6: In a way, it was uh, organic, uh, moving from opposite to opposite. So I started with really wanting to be uh, like a contemporary dancer. So I was studying in a dance school, and I was doing ballet and uh, ballet, and contemporary dance every day. And I got really uh, sick of it. So then I, I, I heard about a school in Amsterdam that's more like a... It says choreography in the title, but it's more like performance art. So you were really allowed to... Do whatever you wanted. And while I was there, I guess I got just really sick of seeing trained performers. You know, I had already a long background of training myself, but then also seeing my classmates being very good technically or, or something like that. And I really wanted to see something much more real. And so then I, uh, I wanted to collaborate with, uh, non-professionals and also stop working in the studio and do work that was completely unscripted and starring people I've never met before.
1: Well, that sounds like it was the origins of the ideas of Craigslist All-Stars, but I'm curious, what was that moment where you said, this is what I want to do, this is my next project?
6: I did the very first one. I don't know if you remember the Ukrainian. So that was the very first one I ever filmed. And I remember that the, the, the situation of me stepping to a house that I've never been before, interacting with a person I've never met before, and then trying to make a film about that. And that felt really like endlessly fascinating. And then I continued with that, uh, for, for a couple of years, actually. And in the film, there's 60 people. So this idea of like gathering real life events and creating them at the same time. And really, well, I think that my, Performance background comes with the fascination of how people perform themselves. I think that's very important in this film. So whether that's online or in front of a camera. I, I am also a filmmaker who steps into my own film. So I think that was one of the interesting questions. Like what will happen, uh, when the director is an active protagonist, like inside my own creation and how will the camera influence behavior between me and, and my subject? And only later I found out the whole term for this is this interventionist filmmaker. But of course, when I started making this, I had no idea that there is such a term even
1: existing. So once you got into filmmaking, what were those early films like? Were you always a part of your own movies?
6: Yes, that was a very first decision that I would not be uh, behind the camera like a regular filmmaker, because I'm not really a regular documentary filmmaker. So I did take the decision to step into my film. and I think, in a way, when I entered my subject's home with my camera, it felt like it it's not like I was making a film it felt like I was rather stepping into a film, and I think that was very fascinating, so it became this hyper real situation where I was starring in a real time taping, and the knowledge it would be seen in the future gave this sense of being watched already so um, we would skip a lot of this handshake information so Meeting in front of camera heightened a lot of the interaction. So, for example, um, excitement was more exciting, romance became more romantic, and at the same time, awkwardness could be easy contention. And I noticed that the will to represent yourself adequately could lead to perform a better version of yourself. What I noticed that was this kind of division that occurs when a filmmaker steps into their own film. You become both the matter and the maker, both subject and object. And therefore, the sort of self splits into two senses. You know, one self is performing and the other self is being performed. Of course, one could argue that there is no such thing as a clear and true sense of self and the camera or stepping into the camera is more exposing this reality of the lie that we tell ourselves there being a sense of true self. When I was after making this film, I had to make a thesis in school about my work like a and thesis, and I found this quote about interventionist filmmakers that I felt very fitting to my work, and it was um that the interventionist filmmaker is a fluid entity defined and redefined by every context in which she appears and I found it really beautiful because you're not this rigid character behind the camera, but you can step into your design and you can make performers out of your subjects. And you give them the chance to guide, uh, or become even sort of partners in the piece. And that way, each of you hold a stake of the outcome of the work.
1: Nothing can be pure if somebody knows that they're on camera. So I'm curious as far as did you notice your own subjects changing when you turn on the camera? Did you have it on all the time? And did you feel yourself change as soon as you knew you were stepping in front of the camera?
6: Definitely. For both. It, it definitely changed, and in a way, it wasn't really my intention to capture their daily lives of my subjects, you know. And I, because in a way, I understood to be creating a surreal, surreal setup, you know, because inviting a stranger into your home and filming each other is not really a normal situation. So it's not like I'm showing a portrait of these people. It's more like a um, uh, collection of uh, encounters and interactions, and the reality in my film, is born from that interaction. And that wouldn't be there if the camera was not present. So it's kind of important to realize that we see what happened when the camera was there, but not what would have happened if it wasn't. So, of course, the uh, the uh real of the camera and the real of the situations are different. So it's not like I'm showing you the truth of these people. But the camera is provoking its own kind of truth, uh, a, a focused truth. But of course we could um argue that regular documentary makers that are behind the camera can be very performative uh, and then therefore at the same time influence the realness of their documentary. So they're not necessarily as neutral or objective as they imagine to be because I at least noticed myself that silence can be a very powerful manipulative tool. And in a way, at least being in Inside the film, I, um, I feel like being inside the film, there was at least something I didn't know. Something that required my reaction. And that felt kind of the real thing or the authentic thing.
1: We well, talked about realism and I'm curious as far as how real is Craigslist All Stars? Did you ever do a take two?
6: There was no takes. So the camera would be on since I stepped in and then the camera would go off when I left. So, and there was not really anything I ever looked from them. And I, I'm not really like a um, like an interviewist. so I don't ask them questions necessarily, or I don't. I would say that my presence is in a way, I don't encourage anyone, but I also don't judge whatever they decide to do. They saw that I wasn't judging them. And I think that also made them reveal
1: themselves to me. From my perspective as a viewer, it really seemed that Almost every person that you were talking to was trying to give a performance. You know, we talked about performance in the film, and they're trying to either give a performance as far as this is who I am or this is who I want to be. I mean, especially I think about um, – I think the person's name was Pat, or they're there actually – Giving a performance, in so far as I'm going to play piano or I'm going to play the guitar, so it seemed like everybody had something that they felt like they really wanted to express with themselves.
6: Actually, in the work of the, the cococous there, I have a collection of skills because I noticed that it was not like I said it was nothing that I asked from them, but I noticed at some point that all of them, in a way, wanted to present something that they were good at. Of course, you could think that that's also very. Uh, classical choreography in this male-female meetings. It's situations that they have to, you know, brag with something that they have.
1: I also know that over time, things have changed as far as looking at documentaries from the 60s and 70s and thinking about the size of the cameras that people would have. What kind of actual tools were you using to create this? And I don't You know, I'm not like a fetishist as far as like, was it a Sony, blah, blah, blah. But what's the size of the camera that you're actually bringing in here?
6: Even now, they have like in in 3, they have progressed so much that they're very, you can have very tiny ones. But mine was kind of like a regular camcorder. So it was not too big or anything, but it definitely was, it's not like a mini. It's a nice handheld camera, Canon. Um, But that was it. It was very... Like I always go to meet these people alone, so I don't use any sound person or anything like that. That was very, uh, I think, big part of creating intimacy. That I would go there alone, and I don't have like a crew behind me, or I don't have a big gear or anything. It's just me and the camera and my subject. So that was uh, to keep them as minimal as possible. It definitely was
1: important. When you are out showing this movie around, do you know, are any of your subjects going and seeing it as well?
6: Some of them have seen it, but some of them I'm not in any contact because in a way part of this deal was this idea that we would remain strangers. So I did not keep contact with uh, all of them. But yeah, like I said, Steph, um, Steph the drunker, he wants to make a sequel when he saw it. So he wants to make a whole movie about him. In a way, you can see that some of them like steph for example he hasn't have had anyone in front of him listening to him probably for years even as a tool i always use this sense of empathy like i think that was like for me staying only behind the camera always felt more exploitative than stepping into the frame and kind of even becoming part of their world like i would always try to um emulate a person's emotional state or attitude so with Steph for example I'm a bit more trashy with him and I think he he really felt appreciated when I wasn't just making a big difference between us but I was on his level and I think that's also a way of getting to know your subjects rather than just being behind the camera.
1: You've said that you kind of put on a different version of yourself when you're in front of the camera, but I'm sure that some people have had trouble telling that version of you apart from the real version of you. Do you have people that come up and just kind of assume that they know who you are because they've seen Craigslist?
6: I often get this question that why am I so different with each of them? And then I always say that I think that's what we are in life. Anyway, we are different with different people. We give a version of ourselves to different people. So that's, I think, very, I don't think there is a clear sense of
1: me in the movie. You talked about the camera that you used, and I'm curious how you would actually set up stuff. I mean, you obviously weren't holding things, so did you have a tripod or did you find like the best position for stuff? How often would you move the camera when it came to these different scenarios that you're in?
6: I tend to notice that I use a lot of shots that are kind of um, symmetrical and full frontal, usually exactly with the static camera. Like, of course, uh, because I don't have a camera person, I have to put it on a, on a tripod. And I quite rarely try to use close-ups. For me, it was always more important than telling to show the subject's surroundings, you know, or more importantly, how they are embedded in their environment as a, as to see the, the home as an extension of the personality. Um, yeah. So I think, but of course, uh, sometimes it was very much an extension of my own hand. Like with the clip of the magician, it's always on my hand and it, it becomes even like a, like this duet, like a going back to my dance background, like a dance duet with the camera. I find it interesting that. Couple of times when people have seen my film, few, um, film teachers from universities have told me that they would like to show the film to their students because you don't learn that kind of camera usage in school, of course, because you learn to technically use it. But they found it so free that someone can really be, move with the camera without,
1: yeah. So I, I found that always nice to hear that they find it free. It's funny that you are a dancer from your background when there's so much dancing inside of the movie that you have at least two gentlemen trying to teach you how to dance in different ways.
6: I know it's very funny. Like I always call it like a dance film. But I guess that's um, it's a sort of very appropriate but physical way to get to know someone, you know, learning a dance together. So it makes sense, but it is very much. There is a lot of dancing. Even though I didn't tell that I have a dance background to any of them.
1: Did you know a lot about documentaries or were you a fan of documentaries before you started to do your own work? I didn't. I was more a fan of
6: fiction films and so it's very interesting or
1: unexpected that I would
6: start to do experimental documentaries. I, I, I can't even name my favorite documentary so it definitely wasn't like a source of inspiration in any way.
1: Are you now having to uh, to go to documentary film festivals is that you know, when your movie gets shown there are you just like oh, I have to trudge through all these other documentary films
6: uh, no and I mean yes I've been to a lot of documentary film festivals now but it's been very nice
1: and we meet
6: I, I love documentary filmmakers because. You know, they go out to the world to find their subjects and topics. I come from a world where people are in studios working every day. You know, inside one space, and these people go over the world to find their materials. I find that very inspiring.
1: Did you ever feel afraid when you're in these situations?
6: So I, I get asked that quite a lot so every time I'm in a Q and A. That's like I would say the top three question that comes always. Um, so of course. It's internet and of course every woman is, uh, is well aware that you might potentially be in danger when alone with a man. So I did hope some kind of safety, uh, safety regulations, uh, for example, that I would tell the person I was filming that someone knows where I am that, and I have to send like checkup messages and I would tell this always beforehand. So, and I think it was really not danger that I was interested in. And I think. When you remove the element of danger, I don't also have to censor myself. So I think that was very important. Yeah, I find that question always funny because while visiting a lot of film festivals, I've met uh, male colleagues that go to warms, wars with their cameras, and no one ever asked them that if they were scared. So it's funny, <laughs> it's cute that people
2: are so worried
6: about me. Of course, I think it's more about that I recognize that there is a risk, or that it, that as a woman there is a risk, but I also don't want to that to limit myself so it was kind of the idea that i create a scenario for myself where i can explore that without
1: having to be afraid how long did it take you to actually put this project together as far as you talked about that initial shooting when was that compared to the last session that you shot for this
2: yes so the first
6: one um i think it was 2013 when i made the very first clip and i was in school uh, I only graduated two years ago from the choreography bachelor. So I was making all kinds of other things. So I wasn't really working on this like consistently. It was more like one clip, then half a year break, then four other clips, uh, and then again, year break. And then I went to actually, I traveled to three different cities to film. So the filming itself happened throughout two, three years. And then the editing, I don't know, like under a week, it felt really easy to edit somehow. Like I didn't have to, because the whole, the the goal with each clip is to make it look like as it felt, how I really, how I remembered that encounter. So of course with this type of, with this type of filming, when you don't have a script or anything, you end up with a lot of material because you film everything. So (laughs) everything is kind of potential material, but I would really work with the memory that I had. Kind of if you meet someone for the first time and you're left with some kind of feeling of them. So that's how I tried to edit. So in that way, the editing didn't take so much time.
1: I have to say your music is really interesting as well, especially that uh, scene that's speeded up. I really like the music choice that you use in that, that section.
6: Thank you. Yeah, it was something that uh, we played in his house. So that's why I picked
1: it. When you got together with these guys, I mean, how long were you actually there with them because sometimes it feels like a few hours and other times like with like the magician it feels like that was a few days
6: yeah exactly like this so with some of I would say the minimum time was at least uh, four hours or something like this so sometimes we just met and talked and that was it but with uh, with some of them it really I think we' in my stage for almost a week so the rule was that once I got in I could stay as long as I wanted but when I left the house I could not return to film. But with some of them, I really stayed.
1: Did you ever go back and meet up with any of these guys again?
6: Uh, Yeah, some of them became friends after that.
1: Were there any folks that you filmed that just didn't work out, that ended up not actually being in the movie?
6: Well, it is a kind of selection, but my goal was to use almost everyone um, that I filmed, because I also felt weird to uh, start to choose Uh, What is a good first meeting? Like, what would I put in the film? But I did, I did graduate with the second work. So with the, with the performance, so I did make a kind of division. Who do I put in the other work? But all of them are kind of in. I just left out the whole city out because I was also filming in New York. There was not enough material. And uh, so I I put it in the other work, but I haven't really left any character out because, like I said, I don't want to any material in a way is any first encounter was, was fine as it was.
1: So obviously there was the ad in Craigslist. Was there much negotiation between the person answering the ad and you showing up at their door?
6: Um, I tried to – I did make a selection of people whose house I would visit. So I wanted to know as little as possible. So I really picked people who I felt that their initial um, message gave the impression that they really want – they're up for the experience. Because, of course, I got a lot of emails that were – you know, straight on sex proposals, or in Japan I got proposals that they would teach me in Japanese. So things that were not related to this. So those I would kind of skip. But these people, it seemed like, from the first message, it seemed like they were interested in the project.
1: You talked about how New York was kind of cut out of the film, but as far as the cities that were in the film, how did you go about choosing which cities you would focus on?
6: So I started from Amsterdam. That was only because I was... Uh, I was here and I was in, uh, yeah. So I started, I I was in school, so I couldn't really travel. And then I did the rest while I was on my last year doing a kind of, uh, internship. So I chose not to go work with anyone. I chose to go film by myself. Uh, so I, uh, I did go to Berlin, uh, but I was going to meet there, uh, some other artists. So that was also a reason. And then I always wanted to go to Tokyo. So the cities are not like,
5: they don't have any
6: too much of a meaning so it was just cities i visited
1: yeah i know you're very into performance art as well as film and i'm curious you know when these things are shown uh as more of an exhibition as is if craigslist all-stars is shown as an exhibition is it shown as a film or do you divide it up and show it some other way or what's that experience like for people who see it as an exhibition
6: first of all i was very glad that it was picked that they premiere at the film festivals because that's I really wanted it to be a little, just as a film because of course I didn't have any film experience and I was doubtful if, if film scene would acknowledge it so I was very happy that IDFA in, in Holland took it and that it got a quite alright film festival tour after that but then of course some performance festivals, in a way you could look at it as a performance, this film if you would want to. I haven't shown it so much. I do like it to be watched from the beginning to the end, so that's why I'm kind of not giving it as a installation loop. That's why I think it works better as a, in theater or in uh, in cinema. Because I don't know if I, at least, in, in I'm kind of hasty in galleries for videos. I kind of run through them, so I'm not sure if it's such a as is it as it is. Maybe if I would like cut it in pieces and like one room would show one person, that might work much better. That you would always see one person as a loop rather than the whole film as a loop.
1: As you are having Krixis All-Stars shown, I'm curious, what is the reaction that you get? You talked about how you get three main questions. I'm curious, have I asked the other two? And if not, what are they?
6: I often get asked about the safety, uh, sometimes about the cities, and of course the question of why only men is is uh, is uh, very prominent at this film.
1: That's funny. I wouldn't even think that because, I mean, men are such bizarre creatures that it almost feels like you're putting them under the microscope, which is a good thing because they are so weird.
2: Yeah.
6: Um, in the very, very beginning of this project, there was the idea that it could be just anyone, but also it was only men who responded to this ad. So very quickly it became about that. And I back in the days, I was listening to a lot of, um, exhibitions and of course getting used to art history and the whole uh, it it became so boring to see all these exhibitions where you know many pictures of different girls by portrayed by male artists uh, but all were with the same kind of feel and vibe to them this idea of male gaze and to see that the whole setup of that is that women were put into a certain role you know they were projected as a A fantasy was projected on them, and I, uh, and I started thinking that I've never seen a female artist whose topic is only men, and then I kind of decided to become one. But without the idea of putting these men into certain roles, I'm really giving them the chance to show themselves as they are. Even I'm not even vilifying them, or it's more about this kind of laughable woman-man gender role.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, one of your other pieces, Kakak, Cock, Cock, Who's There? When did that happen uh, versus when Craigslist All-Stars happened? Because looking at your CV, it's like they both seem to be happening right around the same time, both playing different festivals uh, almost concurrently.
6: Yeah, so I uh, it, that was the other graduation work that I did for so theater play, um, but it, it contains only also like 80% film. And, but like you said, it's been mainly touring in, in the theater and performance field as, as the film has been touring in film festivals, which I like because it's been kept it interesting. It explains a lot about the background of Craigslist, but it's more like autobiographical story. But I never, whenever I'm speaking about Craigslist also, I never talk about that because I leave that for that show. And when people see, see the works they talk about them differently even either, either even there is similar material in, in uh, both of the works. But I think yeah, Craig's All Stars, it's or they're both kind of
1: about different topics. Can you describe what Kakak Who's There is like for folks who are listening? So it's a mix
6: of monologue and film. So I tell a very, uh, autobiographical story where I talk first and then I show film. So it's, it's actually my, it's really like, a, almost like a retrospective on my whole research on my encounters with men through different online platforms. So in Craigslist, you only see the part where I meet men through Craigslist, but in Coca there you see me meeting men through um, different dating apps, uh, Tinder, okay, Cupid, Chatroulette, and, um, and then also Craigslist. And then, yeah, so I'm sure it's really like showing the whole spectrum of these different kind of c- encounters
1: through online. I'm sure you get a different breed of guys from each different platform.
6: Um, yeah, Chatroulette is, of course, I don't know if you use Chatroulette, it's, uh, it's a webcam based. Where you can like just press next and you'll be put, uh, into a video chat with a random person from all around the world. So it's very fleeting. Actually, my whole collection of men from Jatumla is just images because it is this idea that you meet for a couple of seconds and then you just press next and that's it. So it's just images. You see like, uh, reactions. And then, um, Tinder is, yeah, it's mu- much younger guys. And then Craigslist is, yeah, maybe a bit older guys.
1: So I know we had a little bit of issue connecting as you were touring. Were you touring, uh, your show?
6: I was, yeah, I was touring with Coco, who's there now. I mean, I, I've toured with it already two years, but now it was very intensive. I was touring for almost two months, like almost every day performing. So it's really, because it, it also deals with sexual violence. So of course, because of the hashtag Me Too, it has gotten a new wave. So it's really like, like almost, yeah. Delivered for that. I mean, it worked already. It, of course, I made it 2016, so way before the whole hashtag me too. But now it, it, it hasn't gotten older at all, which is, it's not a good thing in a way. <laughs> of course, I'm happy that it's still touring, but in a way, I would hope that these things are already old, that I don't have to, in a way, then it has become, it has served its purpose, but it feels more accurate or more current than ever. Exit like All-Stars will maybe last longer time because it's not so, I don't know. It's, it's more about this meeting. It becomes, of course, it's about gender, but it also becomes about these personalities and like how two people meet in front of a camera. So uh, how does the interaction happen? Where the cockroaches, there's very much more about the gender
1: issue. So what's next for you?
6: So, to ring with the show. And now I'm applying for,
1: for funding for
6: my next, next two works, which would hopefully I would start them next year. And I will definitely, I will not continue with the idea of meeting people at their homes, but I will do continue with collaborating with people uh, I've never met before.
1: Samira, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad that we were able to finally talk. Thank you. Super. All right, we're back and we were talking about Craigslist All-Stars. And I wanted to know, have you guys ever seen a documentary like this? I was really hard-pressed to even think of anything else that runs along these lines?
4: Um, No, I haven't seen a documentary like this. The thing that it reminded me of the most was Anatomy of Hell by Catherine Brie. And that's not even like a documentary. That was just taken from um, her book. But that was like what stuck out most to me, I guess.
3: Not really. I guess I was trying, I was racking my brain and the closest I can come, maybe, and it's just maybe, is Monica Choit's female misbehavior. But the form is so different. So, yeah, I, I don't think I've seen something like this before.
1: My mind went right to the gutter, and I started thinking about the Craigslist killer, <laughs> that TV movie. And I'm just glad that nothing bad happened to her. It's horrible to say, but I was just so afraid of these men every single time she gets in this situation. I'm just afraid that one of them is going to snap and get angry and become physically abusive. And I don't know what that says as far as why I would be so afraid, but I imagine that you guys probably feel that kind of thing every day.
3: Yeah. I saw these men and I was like, yeah, that's about right. So I honestly, I'm very curious about what men think watching this film. Like, I'm really interested in your thoughts, and I would be interested in seeing what reactions to the film among men were. That was something I had not thought about, was just because my reaction is just
1: would be completely different from like if you showed it to a whole room full of men. The biggest thing that I saw was the mansplaining and just all of them needing to tell her something and especially the director was the biggest one the director trying to cajole her and get her to do things and he qu- he didn't seem to necessarily be able to explain what he wanted or spit it out you know it just felt like he was going all around the thing that he wanted to say but he never could really get there and he seemed to be the one who was the most frustrated and frustrating to me and he was the one who i was the most afraid of because it felt like something meant a whole lot to him and she didn't know why it meant that much to him and it felt like he just kept trying to impress upon her the importance even though he could never say what that was and that was like one of those really frustrating and scary experiences for me the way that he kept dancing around Ideas and never quite pinpointing them.
3: Well, he's also he he um ignored her explicit rejection. Like she told him that she didn't want to be spanked, and he kept trying, being like, "Well, just try it, just try it." I think that was part of what was alarming to you about it? See, that was very scary for me. Like that yeah. whole scene
4: was just very, very scary.
1: Absolutely. And it was funny because I don't know if the sadist the guy who kind of opens up the proceedings, I don't know if he necessarily was interested in doing that with her or if he was more interested in just explaining things. Cause he seemed to be very much, he seemed to be one of those guys where you ask him what time it is and I'll tell you how to build a watch. It just felt like there was a lot of, this is about power and all these things. And this is why I'm so good is because I can make a woman feel this way and I can, you know, spank her feet. Though I'd rather, you know, paddle her vagina. I was just like, whoa, okay.
4: He would talk about it like I. It was like when he was talking about it. It was like I was reading like a, a sadist manual one hundred and one instruction. Like it was just so. It it got boring to me a little bit, just because it was like, okay, like you're just rambling on and on, and you're trying to make it sound so like you know when. Men are explaining something and they're trying to make it sound like this big, like, almost art form kind of thing. And it's really not, but they just keep going on and on and on about it. That's what I got from that. It was just like, okay, we get it. Like, land the plane kind of thing.
1: You don't understand how profound he is. Luke goes through an arc from... The very first Star Wars film to the last one, and the arc isn't complete because there's one whole more movie to go, you know? So, in the scene where she's getting
4: like spanked, or he's trying to spank her, you do see like this almost like this glimpse of like innocence and like walking on innocence and fear kind of thing within her in that moment. And I thought that that was. Good for the film. Like, I think, like, catching that mood was really good for the film. But it does make me question a little bit of how that helped her with coping with the sexual assault.
3: Because yeah. it was very forceful. I recognize the way she was handling him. Like, the other people mm-hmm. she was saying, oh, or she was calling stuff a liar. And, you know, he was. He was alarming to me too. Like he, he set warning bells off to, too. But she didn't have to handle him and she was very obviously, uh, handling the director in a way that she doesn't handle the other people. Which made it scary. For me.
1: He seemed to exhibit weakness. Like I don't know if this is just me as a guy saying this, but he just felt weak. Like he wanted something and he wasn't able to say what it was. And I'm curious because it feels like there were other guys where they're just like, yeah, this is what I want, or this is what I want to have happen. And she seems to be like, oh, okay, cool. You know, Whether she engages or not, I don't know, but he just doesn't seem to be able to formulate what he's trying to do. So that's why it feels like he gets so frustrated, and that's why I was afraid he was going to snap get to the point, dude, just say what you want and we'll see where it goes from there. But he just, even though he's saying like, I want to spank you, I want to spank you, I want to spank you, it felt like there was more to it than that. And it felt like he wasn't even able to come to grips with his own stuff. Whereas there were other people that are just like, this is what I want to do or this is what I want to talk about.
4: I think that is why it's like his... Like, he is such a scary, like, that's what it was to I me. Mean, he was just a scary
1: individual, because
4: he, he was hungry. Like, he kept repeating, like, what he wanted and stuff like that, but there was no kind of direction. And the things he was saying wasn't matching, like, the tone he was saying them in. And it was just very unpredictable. And I guess, like, as
3: a a young, like, small woman, it was just scary. Well, he got a really strong sense that he wouldn't uh, take note for an answer. That he was so focused on getting what he wanted, regardless of of whether he knew what he wanted, he was just so focused on the possibility that he wouldn't get it that he might that he might become violent and might become angry because he wasn't going to get what he wanted. And so then she has and to move to the, the the awkward laughter phase of turning a guy down. Yes, do you think it's interesting, like that you? said that you sense weakness
4: because I do think that there is some kind of like um, correlation between like being forceful and being weak or I guess being weak and not resulting into being forceful.
3: I was thinking about him and then you compare him with the sensei and the sensei knows what he wants and he's worked his shit out. And so he's capable of seeing her as a person and taking her consent seriously and meaningfully where the director
1: can't. There's a huge difference between being assertive and being aggressive. And it just felt like he was being aggressive and not assertive. And by that, it felt like he didn't know what he had in his own mind. And there were other people who were assertive. And then there were people that came off as aggressive. And the aggressive ones are the scary ones to me.
3: Uh, You make me think of the the scene with the magician where he says he's adamant, and then they define adamant. And they have a fun and lovely time together where they're both happy.
1: Apropos of nothing, for whatever reason, I kept noticing pianos in the movie. I mean, pianos are being played in the very beginning. But it felt like, does everybody in Amsterdam own a piano? It, It was bizarre. There's a lot of dancing, too. There's a lot of dancing, in, especially in the Berlin section. So maybe everybody in Amsterdam owns a piano and everybody in Berlin likes to dance. I mean, that's just what I can say, like, wide-sweeping journalizations as the ugly American. I can only vote. I want to thank my co-hosts, Carol and Haley. Carol, how are things going at the uh, Cultural Gutter?
3: Things are going swell at the Gutter. Our annual fundraiser, the Gutterthon, is this summer please consider contributing. And the cultural gutter is a website devoted to thoughtful writing about disreputable art. We have essays on comics, TV, Indian B movies, horror, science fiction, romance games, and all kinds of things. So check us out. The URL is www.culturalgutter.com. And you can find my shenanigans at monstrousindustry.wordpress.com.
1: Yeah. If I wasn't doing so many podcasts every freaking week, I would be begging to be writing over at the Cultural Gutter. I just wanted you to know that.
3: Oh man. Thank you.
1: And Haley, for folks not familiar with your work, how would you describe it and what you do?
4: I do video repurposing and experimental filmmaking. So uh, the process is taking old pornography or films that have some kind of like weird concept, usually where the uh, male role is a lot more prominent and kind of removing him and running that through a distortion pedal and collaging different works of film and then running that through and distorting it and changing the colorways and kind of putting more of a conceptual thought behind it um, on top of other installations and sound object stuff.
1: I'm not familiar with distortion pedals. Is that like a guitar pedal? Is it like an analog thing or is it a digital thing?
4: It's all analog and it's a modified... You can really modify anything. Keyboards, guitar pedals. I've played around with actual like tape collaging. So I'll take old... I always work with VHS as my platform. Um, I think there's something really
2: nostalgic.
4: And I always say, if you're going to watch something watch it on a VHS, but taking the reels and cutting and pasting other tapes together with it or manually like taking out the whole tape and distorting that physically in some way and then reeling it back in and then playing it. So um, a lot of tape manipulation.
1: Do you have a website where people can see some of your stuff?
4: I am in the process of working on my website So I do have a Vimeo, which Haley McCormick is the easiest way to look me up, or following me on Instagram, which is going to be Haley Mary Patricia McCormick.
1: Well, I will be sure to link to that and to the cultural gutter over at my website, projection-booth.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you so much, Carol and Haley, for being part of this today Come on over to projection-booth.com where you can rate and review the show. You can also go over to our Patreon and leave a donation if you want. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
0: I'm going to sell some stuff online. Cause honey, you were flat broke, this ain't gonna last, this time will surely pass.